If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to 1 Timothy. This morning we continue our look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. I get to talk to you about how it's good for you to be generous with your elders and pay your pastors well. Um, actually, that we are talking about that today, but I also see that Oak Hall is trying to test my mettle up here, leaving me a very narrow trail to walk, so... Uh, you can pray that I do not fall over this stage because it is in the back of my mind that I'm going to do this. Well, this morning we find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 5, picking back up where we left off here in verse 17. We had been looking at widows, and now we're looking at elders. And how does the church, how do, so we know how elders are to lead. Uh, Paul has given us all the character qualities of that. And so we know the implications of those character qualities. We, the overarching theme is faithfulness. How are elders to lead faithfully? Paul lays this out in 1 Timothy. But what he does now is talk about when those elders, when those, when those pastors do labor faithfully, what is the response of the church? How should the church commend and treat elders who are faithful in their shepherding tasks? He especially notates, especially those who are in the teaching and preaching side of the ministry. And so, just like anything else, we should not be surprised that Paul has detailed information about how is the church to respond to good and faithful leadership. I mean, not only do we know we should be submitting ourselves to truth and we need to be places where truth is proclaimed, but beyond that, how do we respond to that? What is the response of the people of God when men are faithfully shepherding in the Word through teaching and preaching. So that's where we are this morning, and that's what we're looking at. And so really, without further delay, let us go ahead and turn our attention to the Word itself. 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17, we will read through the end of the chapter. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant Word. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So in the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Pray with me now. Father, we thank You for this passage of Scripture this morning, for the depth of it, the richness of it, the simplicity of it, the practicality of it. Help us, O oh Lord, as we continue to march on to the beat of Your song, to be more and more conformed into the image of Christ. Use this Word this morning to transform us more and more. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. History is filled with people who led well. And so often, historical figures, one of the primary reasons we remember them is because they led well. I mean, when we think about 
uh, like George Washington, the first president of the United States, he wasn't the greatest general in the world. He made some really bad military blunders. And so we don't remember him because like Alexander the Great, he was a military genius. We remember him because he was a good leader. And, and, and history is filled with those. You think of, of Abraham Lincoln, I'm just naming presidents here, or even uh, Franklin Roosevelt or Harry Truman, all these people who are imperfect. They're flawed. We could look at things in their lives and say, yeah, that wasn't great, that wasn't great, that wasn't great. But when it comes down to how, when it comes down to how they led, we remember them because they led well. They stick out into our minds. You can think of people right now in your past with church or otherwise, who you would think about, that person was a good leader. They led well. And so often what makes a leader good is not only their capacity to make good decisions, but it's their capacity for compassion in situations where people are not just tasks, and tasks are not just a get-it-done type thing. There's a full orb, there's a whole, there's a whole ministry going on there. And so the good leaders we remember are the leaders who take care who are wise, who have integrity, who try to live with good character, and who try to serve and love and lead well. That's what their focus is. So not people who are trying to climb a ladder or just exhort or have power or just to maintain position, but people who genuinely are interested in serving and leading in a sound direction. In biblical terms, when we think about leadership, we, there, there is no category for bad leadership. There isn't one. There is good leadership. There's faithful leadership. That's what the Bible is very adamant about, uh, even in the Old Testament. Of course, some of the judgments that came against Israel was because of the, the bad leading of bad shepherds. And so the Bible has no category for mediocre or so-so or a kind of bad leadership. It has a category for excellent leadership, leadership that is, that is in the image of Christ, that is seeking to imitate Christ. But let me tell you, the Bible is very adamant that leaders lead well. The Bible is also very adamant, as we've just read, that the church takes care of those who are leading her, and she does it well. In other words, she doesn't just do it half-heartedly. She doesn't do it begrudgingly. She does it because she is the beneficiary of the blessing through the leaders. So when we think about both leading, leading, and we think about honoring said leaders, both are going to be a mark of character. What is the character of a local body? Well, how does she treat her leaders? How does she treat the men who are elders? How does she treat the men uh, proclaiming the Word of God if they're doing it faithfully? Those are great questions to ask, and it, we, we, we shy away from it because it's about money, and we don't ever want to make it awkward. And this is not all just about money, though. So let's, let's get that out of the way. I'll come back around to that here in just a minute. But how we treat each other as an overarching theme says a great deal about our character. Our, our attitude toward being a blessing in any, for any reason says a great deal about our ca character if that is missing. So when we come to this, it is no surprise, as I said a moment ago, that Paul gives us detailed instructions about honoring leaders. Paul shows the, uh, the importance of honoring good leaders, and it's just as important as leading well. That's kind of what he's getting at. So when we talk about leading or honoring, 
We're talking about something that is going to speak volumes about the heart. Now, we're not always going to honor perfectly. No, we're going to miss it sometimes. We're not always going to lead perfectly. I don't always lead great. I make mistakes. I have blunders. I have blind spots and weaknesses. So, yes, we're not talking about somebody who is going to be perfect. We're talking about people who are trying to faithfully live out the precepts of the gospel as they lead. And as people are blessed by that, that they want to honor those leaders and be a blessing to them in some way with their own generosity. And again, this is bigger than just money. But I want us to understand that lack of gratitude, lack of honor for faithful leaders is as sinful as bad leading. Because both are pulling away from the truth of the Bible. Both are departing from Scripture. Bad leaders, yeah, that's sinful and wrong. It needs to be confronted. But if you have a group of people who are not trying to bless and care for their good and faithful leaders, that is bad and wrong and needs to be confronted. So I want us to see that th this is a both-and situation. When we deny honor or help or generosity to good leaders, in a very tangible way, this is what we're saying to them. I don't love and appreciate you very much. And if we love and appreciate, it's like, how can I, how can I be a blessing? How can I truly, truly be a blessing to this person? When we think about generosity and gratitude, that should be the posture of a church. Obviously, I'm not up here like Creflo Dollar saying I need a $40 million jet. You know, if, if I throw that down, then somebody shout out no. So that's not, that's not the point. And so we, you see prosperity gospel uh, preachers who just take this way, way too, and they'll come here and they will abuse this text to line their pockets. That's not what this text is for. This text is just that gentle reminder that says it's easy to choose selfishness. It's easy to choose the thing that I like or I'm most comfortable with. So Paul is challenging Timothy to say, remind the church at Ephesus and the church at large that generosity with good leaderships should be the posture. Now, nobody should be pastoring to get rich, but as, as faithful men labor well in the pulpit, the church should meet their needs. That's what Paul is, is saying. And I want to go ahead and say this on the front end. I am so very, very grateful that this has been the posture of the chapel with Richard and me and Jeffrey and John Patrick, that they, the elders consistently look for ways to bless the pastoral staff. And you participate in that every year. And so from the bottom of my heart, thank you for taking this passage of Scripture very seriously out of 1 Timothy, because it is a blessing when we can labor and I can give myself to the labors of the pastorate and not fret and worry about whether or not I'm going to have my bills paid or whether or not I'm going to put food on the table or whether or not my family is going to be cared for and loved. And so the chapel is a great example of this. I know I'm tooting our own horn, but it's, it's true. It's, what I'm saying is absolutely true. Paul says that good and faithful leadership in the Word deserves recompense. And as we benefit from uh, faithful teachers, what we have to ask is, how can we be a blessing in return? How can I be personally be a blessing in return? How can I contribute to the, the corporate congregation to be a blessing in return? That's the primary question. How can we bless them in return? And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this this morning. The call to the church is to lead and honor well. The call to the church is to lead and honor well. And so when we're looking at this, you've got these twin pillars of leading and honoring, and that's kind of what we're addressing. And so whether we lead or whether we honor, it should be done for God's glory, right? 
So that's just a general principle. Whether we lead or whether we honor, it should be done for the glory of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that we do all things to the glory of God. Leading, honoring, even how we eat, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10. So what Paul is doing here is he's given Timothy this instruction for elder care. So he's given specific instructions for how we, the church, are going to care for elders. And here's how he starts this category. Let the elder who leads or rules well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the mark of faithfulness here is primarily in preaching and teaching, especially those who labor in word, literally who labor in word and teaching, that that's the mark of faithfulness is how are your pastors and elders handling the Word of God? Are they faithful to preach and teach the truth? Are they staying on script with the Scripture? Are they straying? Are they getting, are they getting sidetracked? Paul says those, the, the mark of faithfulness of a church, a primary one, is how the ministry of the pulpit looks. And so that's kind of where we're, we're going from here. He says that those are worthy of double honor. Now, we've got we to parse out what that means, because there's been several ideas about what does it mean. So some people say, well, does that mean they get a double stipend or a double honorarium? No, that's not what Paul is saying. Or it's been proposed that maybe he, he was saying that they get double what the widows get, since we've just talked about widows. Well, that's not what Paul is saying either. He's, he's using the word honor here in two ways. He's getting at this idea of some sort of remuneration, right? Some sort of recompense for his time, but also respect. That not only does he need to be, uh, have, uh, that word always trips me up. I even took it out of all my notes. Recompense, he needs, he's supposed to be respected. That's what Paul is getting at here, that he's given honor, he's given deference, but he's also getting some form of payment. Uh, and both are important, both are absolutely important. They're part of what it means to have relationships and to relate to good leadership. And so we, we want to say that respect is great, and we should be respecting good leaders. Compensation is also important because it's, it's, it's that, that idea that the church understands that this is time-consuming. A sermon doesn't just come together magically, and I know nobody thinks that. It is, if you're going to do it right, it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of digging and a lot of reading and a lot of studying and a lot of praying and a lot of thinking. And most faithful men who would admit it to you that you're not just thinking about your sermon at your study, you're thinking about it when you're walking, you're thinking about it when you're in the shower, you're thinking about it when you're alone in the car and you're praying and you're thinking through it. It is a very time-consuming practice for those who do it right. Now, of course, somebody could just get up here willy-nilly, open the Bible and start talking about the Scripture. And I've, I've heard it. And it's terrible. It's awful. And you can tell that when they start doing it, this person doesn't know what he's talking about. It is much more to be desired to have the good spade work of digging deeply into the text and letting it tell you what it wants to say. Instead of coming to the text and saying, this is what I want to say, we dig deep and say, now, tell me what you want to say. I just did it. I guess y'all didn't hear me kick the thing. <laughs> oh, Brad, get back on track. Uh, compensation, yes. So that's why actually what Paul does, he says, let the elder who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor. That word there, labor, uh, think of it as toil, uh, strenuous, hard. 
Not, not easy, those who labor in the Word. So Paul is under no illusions that laboring in the Word is some easy, simple task, that it's something that requires a lot of investment if you're going to do it right. And so he, he says that those who labor in the Word, they're worthy of double honor. And I want us to understand that there's, there's a double blessing that happens. If you've ever walked away from the chapel and you thought, whether whoever's preaching up here, and you thought, I was blessed by that sermon this morning, that was meaningful to me, you need to understand that as much as it blesses you, the receiver, it is a blessing to the giver because the giver has had to rehearse it in his mind over and over and over. And sometimes you'll say, well, Brad, that was super convicting. I'm like, how much more convicting for the one who's been marinating in it for a week? So when, a good, when we are blessed by the preaching of the Word, we understand that both the receiver and the giver are equally blessed because we are hearing the same word and, and um, studying and being blessed by the same word. Now, Paul kind of buttresses his argument here. So he, he, he gives you the general principle in verse 17, and then he gives you the scriptural uh, foundation upon which it's built. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, so what you have here in verse 18 really is simple, right? It's, it's just a very simple example used for a very particular purpose. Paul is simply making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Hey, if the ox gets to eat while it works, we need to make sure that the pastor is even better cared for. He not only, that his needs are met, that he's not laboring and having his needs go unmet. That's what Paul is driving at here. And then I love what he does. So he takes that from Deuteronomy chapter 25, and then he adds to it, Luke chapter 10, verse 7, which is pretty amazing that he quotes Jesus directly out of Luke's gospel in 1 Timothy. So we understand that there already there was a solid theology and story and narrative about Jesus that Paul is drawing from. And he brings these two ideas together, Old Testament, New Testament. And what does he do for us here? Gives us this argument, hey, if, if, we, if we take care of our animals while they're working, we need to be caring for our pastors. And then he says, but then he takes that, the Scriptures say, he quotes Deuteronomy, and he quotes Jesus. Right here, Paul tells us that Jesus is on par with the Old Testament. So when we think of scriptural authority, at this moment in time, when he writes 1 Timothy, he is telling the world, as much authority as you think the Old Testament has, Jesus has the same authority. And so we get a clear picture and theology a Christology of who Christ is and his authority as God incarnate. And so that, that becomes a very, very important little passage of Scripture there for that very reason. But then he continues. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So we don't receive a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We've heard that before. It's just a simple Old Testament principle of, of testimony and or law, law and testimony of how, how do we entertain uh, charges? Well, they have to be substantiated. Why would he do this? Because it's human nature for people to get mad, and we see it all the time. They just make stuff up. They can just make up anything. And in this day and age, our culture is so backwards that as soon as it's out there, you're guilty. You're already guilty, even if the accusation isn't true. We've had, I've had friends falsely accused, and I had to shelter a storm and move cities. 
But the point is, is Paul is saying the way to observe order and decorum is to say we're not even going to hear it unless you can substantiate a charge against an elder with two or three witnesses or more than that. In other words, they, they, they need to be, it needs to be, it needs to be substantiated. It needs to be witnessed. Um, because charges are serious, and we don't want to be aloof. We also don't want to be scared to do it, you know, and when, when, when there's a necessity. Ah, I'm struggling today, y'all. When it's necessary for charges to be made, they need to be made. But it also we need to understand the serious nature of bringing accusations, not just against elders, but against anybody. But then he, he, builds, he builds from this, and the next few verses are going to build on this. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, we're still talking about elders here. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So, right, here we have it. So, don't bring a charge. But if you do, and they persist in doing what they ought not do, then here's what has to happen. They've got to be rebuked before all. So what Paul is doing is he's given us this idea of when an elder, there's two paths one can go. So when we're confronting sin, you can go to somebody, this is anybody. You can go to that person, person to person, and say, I know that you have done X. And that person could say, you're absolutely right, I, I did do X, and I did not handle it well. And the other person says to person, hey, you need to repent, you're absolutely right, I do need to repent. Let's, let's pray together and help me, keep me accountable, help me walk in repentance. When that happens, you've won a brother, you've won a sister, you've won somebody. Because at that point, they have responded exactly how they are supposed to when we are confronted in sin. They've repented, they're, they're expressing desire to move on, case closed, we can move on. Now, when Paul's talking about a persisting sin, he's talking about something that gets progressively public. And the reason he says rebuke them in front of all because you get to a point where all are seeing it, all are aware. There have been cases, you know, when, when people, perhaps someone has committed adultery and everybody finds out, and those things have to be addressed publicly because a very public sin has taken place in the church. So when that happens, Paul says to rebuke them in front of the congregation when they continue and continue and continue and continue. Because in some sense, that is a teaching moment for the congregation, A, to see how seriously the word is taken, and B, to see how it needs to be handled at a certain level. But, let me, but I want to come back and say something, though, because there, there, are, two, there are two ways we could fall off, the, off the either side here. One is to assume that we never publicly deal with sin, ever. It's always just a private matter because we don't want to embarrass anybody. Well, the goal of rebuking people is not to embarrass them. Is it, is it embarrassing? Well, sure. I would be embarrassed if I got rebuked publicly. That's not the goal. So we run afoul when we say we never deal with it publicly because we don't want to embarrass anybody. But we can run afoul in the other direction, that we, we, we're so, you know, hey, I hate sin. I'm going to deal with every sin publicly and never give you an opportunity as a brother or sister in private to repent and move forward. So the middle ground is... If people show repentance, walk with them in love. If people continue to sin publicly, address it publicly. When you win a brother or sister privately, you've won. No need to go public. It's all about a matter of what the Proverbs talk about so much that we need to make sure we embrace is discretion. Discretion. Now, I grew up in the South, and in the South, it is a shame and honor culture. You don't embarrass people. 
But we have to let that go sometimes for the sake of a soul, of, of a brother or sister who we love. And beloved, we can humble ourselves when we are confronted and so be one without having to take it public. But public rebuke does help others, or does help train others. Where do we see this in Scripture? Well, in Galatians, where Peter started getting shady with the Gentiles, and Paul stood up and rebuked him to his face in front of everybody. Not to embarrass Peter, but why? Because Peter was doing it in front of everybody, and Paul didn't want those people to be led astray. He didn't want those other brothers thinking that what Peter was doing was correct. Addressing sin is not easy. It's not easy as a pastor. It's not easy to be the one addressing. It's not easy to have someone come and address my sin with me. But, beloved of God, it's, it's necessary. It's necessary. We've got to have people in our lives who will ask us hard questions, who will help lead us back to a place of unity with the truth of Scripture. And thank God when we have them. Well, Paul continues here. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging or without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. So, he, he, gives us, he gives Timothy and us, by extension, this charge before the heavenly council. Why does he list God and Jesus and the elect angels? Well, he's given us the full orb sense of the whole host of heaven is behind this. In other words, this, what he's telling Timothy, is the absolute sovereign will of God. God, the Father, God, the Son, and the elect angels bear witness to the truth of it. This is not just his opinion. This is not counsel that Timothy can uh, poo-poo if he wants to. This is directly from God. That's what Paul is telling you. This is directly from God. And so he tells Timothy to do everything I'm commanding you without prejudice. In other words, don't prejudge it and set yourself against it. And without partiality, don't give some people one standard and some people another. And we're very prone to do that. See, this is, this is, again, you can appreciate what Paul understands about human nature. It's very easy for us to get a circle of people that we're close with, particularly close with, and sometimes not apply the same things to them that we do to others. We'll give them a pass because, well, I, I, I know I love him. I mean, he's, I understand that, you know. And what Paul is saying is, Timothy, don't do that. Because it's easy for us, the phrase I learned as a young kid is all about who you know and who you owe, and it's easy for us to operate within that mentality of who I know and who I owe, and Paul's saying, no, no, there is one standard. In other words, it might be easy if one elder looks at another elder and says, brother, I really know you didn't mean it. Let's just sweep this under the rug because you're a good guy. Paul's saying, no, we deal with him the same way we would deal with him. And we will deal with her the same way we would deal with her. All in love, all in order, and all in keeping with the Bible. And so Paul has given us these very practical things about, hey, how do we relate in the church? So this is just beyond good leading and good honoring. This is just how do we relate in the church with one another? How do we relate through conflict? How do we relate through blessing? He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So he says, to not be hasty, he understands the nature of sin. Because of sin, and because of the power of sin, and the reality of sin, what he's telling Timothy is, be slow to lay on hands. Now, there's been debate about what this laying on of hands is. The majority agree with the position that I hold, but there is a, a minority view that 
uh, Paul would be talking about uh, laying on hands of symbolic of welcoming erring elders back into the fold or erring brothers and sisters back into the fold, and so you would lay hands on them to show your solidarity and unity. And I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. I actually think he's talking about ordination because he's just talked about addressing sin and, and how, we, how we deal that with elders. And so he's now given us a, another little piece of the argument. Hey, one way to avoid having these issues is to not be so hasty in ordaining. Let a man's life be known. See, observe, watch. Because if you don't follow these principles, Timothy, and the chapel, and the church at large, the, ch the church of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says. He lays a very sobering charge on us. Do not be hasty in laying on hands, nor take part in the sins of others. That nor take part, he's not, that's not a separate command. That is connected with the laying on of hands. Now, how? Why? Why would it be? Because Paul is telling Timothy, be slow and methodical. Be wise be discerning. And don't let yourself get caught up with a man who you should have known was having sin patterns, and then you become guilty by association with this person who is in known sin, and you've now brought him into leadership. So, Timothy, be slow. Watch. Observe. Be wise. He says, so he's telling Timothy, don't take part in the sins of others by a hasty ordination and keep yourself pure. How? Well, basically, that keep yourself pure. If you think about what Paul is driving at, there's two things we could say about it. One, be wise. That, that's just the simple way. Be wise. Keep yourself pure in this matter by being wise. But pure here can carry this idea of, of singular. Be singularly minded, Timothy, Keep yourself pure and devoted to truth and don't stray from that. And so when you are tempted to do something pragmatically or, or purely just for ease, keep these principles in mind and remember that we are called to stay on the pathway of truth. Use godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. So often we as humans... We, we do things, we do things purely out of expedience. What's expedient for me to do here? And sometimes that's the right call. But in the church, so often, expedience becomes the enemy of obedience. Because we will do something at expedience or trying to be efficient that is not necessarily the wisest course of action. And so we are not called to expedience. We're not even necessarily called to efficiency although efficiency is a good thing, what we are called to is to be faithful in how we apply the Word of God to ourselves and to the church. And we need to have high expectations for any who will stand in this, in this place and preach that they will preach what is true in the Word of God. Now, we can have different theological opinions. So I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to draw daggers on stuff like that. I'm talking about what is faithful to the text in front of us. And so Paul is telling Timothy, obedience, not expedience. This is one commentator has, has said in his commentary on, on Psalms. It's a long obedience in the same direction. I love that phrase. It's one of my favorites. A long obedience in the same direction, that we are continuing to just walk the pathway of God. When we think about what we've, what we, things that we've just read, um, I want us to see that two things that Paul has just said, Timothy, these are things that should, the church should have. It should have caution, 
and it should have impartiality. We should be a cautious, impartial body. These are two great gifts. When you look at verse 21 and verse 22 in the presence of God, and, uh, or, or I'm sorry, in verse 22, it's actually, verse, sorry, y'all, verse 22, do not be hasty in laying on hands or take part and keep uh, and others and keep yourself pure. That's caution. And verse 23 or verse 24 and 25 get into the impartiality about keeping it clear who's who and what's what. But when we think about these great gifts to the church, what it reminds us of is what I just said a few moments ago, that we should be slow and methodical. Give proper time for wisdom to unfold. Give proper time for what is prudent to become known. And so when we think about what is the key ingredient to faithful or to Christian community, it's faithfulness. It's faithfulness in these matters. It's faithfulness with one another. Because if something is worth doing, it's worth doing right. And it's worth doing with faithfulness. And it's, it's going to bear the right fruit when it's done in these ways. Because that's the way that God has prescribed it to work best, to that slow, methodical growth, that slow, methodical maturity. Well, Paul kind of comes out of left field here with this verse 23. It's not connected to anything. It just stands there. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Why he decided to put that there, I don't know. Uh, It's not in keeping with the flow of the paragraph, but it's there. And so uh, it's just what he's telling Timothy. It's quite plain. Drink this wine medicinally. This wine could help your stomach. Clearly, Timothy had some sort of stomach ailments. And Paul was telling him, this, this little bit of medicine, use it a little bit to help your stomach. There's another reason here that Paul would counsel Timothy to drink a little wine and not only water. One of the big boasts of these guys who were claiming these ascetics, who were claiming to be these really holy people, their boast was they only drank water. We don't defile ourselves with wine. We only keep to water. And so another thing Paul would be doing is, Timothy, use a little wine to make sure you don't get confused with those guys. Because that asceticism that they are trying to peddle is not right and good. It's not helpful. And it, it gets to a principle of so often you can come across people who want to show you their holiness by what they don't do instead of by who they are. And that's exactly what these false teachers are doing. They wanted, they wanted to peddle their own holiness by saying, this is what I don't do, and I'm holy because I don't do these things, rather than saying, I'm holy because I'm in the image of God and I'm an imitator of God and so forth and so on. It's like you build from a negative instead of the positive. And so Paul is telling Timothy, avoid any sort of connection with those guys and use a little wine. He wraps this paragraph up simply, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Hence, be slow to ordain. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Eventually, all good works come to the surface. So he's saying, be wise. Uh, Be attentive to conspicuous sin patterns. Don't ordain quickly. Give it some time. Wait. You want to be cautious and slow in ordination because sometimes sin patterns don't show up until later. And there's no, we can't control that. I mean, I've, I've known people who've had to leave the ministry over sin patterns that, you know, 20 years ago, you would never have known that they were going to go that direction. That's the power of sin, though. That's the, the cunningness of sin. But Paul is saying, as a general rule, just be cautious and let, let time do its thing and let experience do its thing. 
because, you know, it can be an issue. No matter how likable a person a man may be, <laughs> he may be a great guy. But if he's got known issues, he shouldn't be a leader in the church. Again, not that he has to be perfect, but that he has to be seeking repentance and holiness. And there are some really great, great people who disqualify themselves. And Paul says, in, the, in time, we'll show you that if you will just be, take the time to get to know a man's life. But in the same way, he balances this out by saying good works will always show themselves too, always. And again, well, we could extrapolate here that elders should be known for their good works, for their faithful works within the church with God's people. I'm very thankful for the group of elders I serve with here, good and godly men. And, and that is evident in their lives, the way they live, as I get to observe their lives. I appreciate them. But elders should be men who are known for their good works. That's exactly what uh, eventually Paul says we shouldn't be able to hide it. In fact, you can see a pattern here. How were widows that the church was going to be caring for? How were they supposed to be known for their good works? Elders should be known for their good works. Deacons should be known for their good works in service and so forth and so on. So you start to see a pattern develop. How should the church be known? For her good works. Not that she's saved by them, and that's not that all that people know, but that should be a very, at the very least, that should be true. Well, as we come to the end of it, what we could say is that excellence should be the goal in leading and honoring. Excellence should be the goal in leading and honoring. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that leaders in the church should have integrity and lead well. Can't get away from that. And they should do this not so that they get paid for it, but because it honors Christ, because it is in keeping with the charge that Scripture has laid on them. But as we see here, Paul says that the church should be excellent in how it honors her leaders. Generosity with salaries is great. It really is and helpful. But there are many other ways to show faithful pastors and elders honor. We can make sure we're very attentive to his family, understanding that oftentimes situations arise where he's pulled away from family to deal with matters of the church. So how are we thinking about his family? How are we praying for his family? How are we seeking very easy, practical ways to be a blessing to his family so that in the times where he is called away, they feel the love of the church? Again, my family is very blessed here. We feel like we are loved well. Now, this is purely selfishly motivated, this next one. Be patient with his weaknesses, because he's got a lot. And one of the ways that we're patient with weaknesses is not winking at sin, not excusing things that ought not to be excused. But pastors are human, and I'll just, I'm just going to be completely transparent with you. There are often times where I do things in my own life, and it's the very things I tell you not to do when you come to my office and receive counsel. Because I, too, struggle with weaknesses. I, too, let fear in the door. I, too, choose unhealthy patterns to deal with anything that I'm going through. And so often, you're sitting there, you're bearing your soul, and I'm, and I'm, yes, and here's what you should do, and here's what the Bible tells us to do. I struggle to take my own advice. So be patient with the weaknesses of your, of your one pastor. You know, Richard doesn't have any. Because... Um, uh, I'm a human, and I also need grace. And I tell you, and I'm also saying this very self selfishly, <laughs> let him know that you love him and you pray for him. Um, that's a great way to honor a pastor. If those of you who send me text messages out of the blues, 
Some of you uh, do it quite a bit and just say, hey, I'm praying for you. That means the world to me. Like, I, that, that blesses my soul. And that's a great way to honor faithful leaders in your midst. Because it's not all about money, and it's not all about resources. Sometimes it is just simply about going the extra mile to say, I love you, and I'm praying for you today. That is a great blessing when we think about it. So we don't place pastors on a pedestal, and, and so the church should never be a cult of personality, but we do show them honor, and we do figure out practical ways to love them. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. It's, it's true, and it compels us to think, how do I live, how do I honor, how do I lead? And Father, in all those ways, I pray that the goal of all of those for us would be that we would do all those things to your glory, that we would ask the first question in leading, living, or honoring is, how can I best glorify God in this? And Father, I pray that you would convict us when we try to go astray. I pray that you would renew us when we give in to our weaknesses, and I pray that you would continue keeping us in a long obedience in the same direction until we hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.